Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Sarah, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to jump into the topic of agile data science, which is what you were speaking about here at the conference today. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into ML and AI and data science. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I started off way back um, in undergrad when I had the opportunity to work on my two passions, biology and computer science together. They opened up a major, bioinformatics. And back then, it was a nascent field, but I was able to do some research in cancer biology, kind of on leukemia and detecting patterns, and then spent some time doing remote research in Caltech on DNA binding and trying to understand if there were patterns we could recognize there. And while I didn't have a specific path, then decided to go to grad school for biomedical informatics, kind of building on that. The lab that I ended up joining was a AI lab, although it was completely focused on bioinformatics. It still was generally part of that department, and so I got a little bit more exposure and started doing things, again, related to DNA and genomics. But as any grad student at Stanford, started a company on the side. <laughs> and um, That's not cliche at all. No, I know. <laughs> but it, it was actually with a good purpose. At the time, actually, Obama had announced the stimulus grants, and it was over one of these late-night conversations with professors that we realized there was this opportunity to support other researchers that didn't necessarily have all of the things required in order to complete and apply for these grants, where they might have really strong background in some biological portion, but didn't have the informatics side of it. And so originally we thought, well, we would offer consulting services to them and kind of stick to our field. And turns out that space of consulting is a lot bigger. (laughs) And our group ended up doing things well outside of that. So I did some work predicting what websites people would be interested in browsing and kind of completely went off the rails from the biomedical background. But and all related to the stimulus grants or totally no, a field? No, it was, it's almost as if, you know, you put out a press release on a topic and, and it just snowballs from there and people kind of hear <laughs> that you're available and around. Um, so no, it, it ended up coming through other avenues. It was very interesting. Um, there were a lot of things that originally started off really around grant writing and helping startups that wanted to apply for these small business innovation research grants. SBIRs, that, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So people... Um, been, been there. <laughs> so it's interesting because I think people apply to them when they hear about them. And if they're not from an academic background, don't necessarily know how to write these grants that will be received well by an academic audience. And so our experience on kind of academic grant writing was already very helpful. Um, the informatics part was maybe only a portion of it. And then, you know, eventually it moved outside of the healthcare realm. And I realized I had just passion in data in general. And although when I was graduating, I still knew that I cared about healthcare and doing something in that space. So I wasn't completely ready to let go of it. Uh, I wanted to leave it a little bit open. And so I joined a software company where I was actually more or less a data scientist for hire. So I worked on the particular distributed database that uh, the company Greenplum actually um, was selling and working with my customers 
with the expertise in biomedical informatics, I'd be able to speak their language, but still really be doing raw data science. And a lot of the time, it wasn't necessarily in my area of expertise, but it was somebody who spoke their language. And there again, over time, I drifted from that background, started doing work on jet plane engines and, you know, banking fraud, and it was just all over the place. So that was great, and it was exciting. Um, But what I really wanted to do was deploy models at crazy scale um, to my customers. And so Salesforce really offers that opportunity to build models um, in this really amazing platform that allows me to just reach a lot of people um, so that they are empowered to use AI and I can do the work around innovative data science on the other end. Before we jump into the the agile data science yeah. uh, element, Einstein. Yeah. Like, in a lot of ways, Einstein is starting to feel like Watson for me. It's like this umbrella brand that covers so many things. Like, in your words, what is Einstein? So the purpose of Einstein really is just to democratize AI. So Salesforce has many customers and Any customer, regardless of size and industry, should be able to harness that power. And so the goal is to allow our customers to use AI to have better interactions with our customers, to make them more predictive. And so we have products, some packaged apps that I've worked on, like predictive lead scoring, that allow a sales rep to understand which of the sales leads are likely to convert to an opportunity based on the data that they have that have historically converted. So while it might sound like a big umbrella, there are some very specific use cases for which we have packaged apps. And then there's a product that I'm currently working on, the Einstein Prediction Builder, which is really intended to, again, democratize AI by allowing our admins to set up things that they want to predict, explicitly some prediction that we don't know they'll want, but they would like to have to augment what they're currently able to have their users do. So we have, you know, so I'm a Salesforce admin. I do some kind of forecast and I want to predict the close date on a deal or something like that. And I can train using my own historical data and maybe some of yours. And so no, it is, it is absolutely, (laughs) we are, we are very strict on kind of focusing on single tenant being able to leverage its own data. So So only my data, but the example is the kind of thing that I might be able to predict using this platform. Yeah, what we're moving forward on right now in Prediction Builder are binary classifications and regressions. And the goal is to allow you to build these predictions. And um, we're working on making the UI really intuitive and allow the admins to do this in a way that's making it easy to set up. And then following on, allowing them to inject those results directly back because sort of going back to my talk a bit today, there's this part around AI. And certainly when I was working at my previous job where we spend a lot of time building models without thinking about how to get them in front of our customers in the end. And so I spent all this time building a model thinking it's really great. And then I'm ready to push live to production and that doesn't go anywhere. It it just kind of sits with me. And that's, what's amazing with Einstein is really that it's right there. You're going to be able to, have it immediately available when it's done building. So agile data science, yeah. what does that mean for you? Yeah. Uh, well, my talk today focused around that concept and insisting that it's, of course, around people and process to make it possible, but that it really is a platform underlying that enables it. So at Pivotal, um, my previous company, there is a practice, Pivotal Labs, that is all about agile and extreme programming. And when we were part of that team, it was really important for us to try and understand how to integrate into that process. And 
Agile has been around. It's, you know, it, it's meant to be adaptive and to work, but there certainly is a mindset that comes with how to approach it, how to have sprints, how to have stories, how to be able to go live and test things. And it doesn't necessarily translate perfectly in data science. So what's interesting is when we think about, for us, trying to push our changes live, it's important to have a way to not feel once you've built a model that it's just going nowhere. It needs to be connected. So really thinking MVP with what it means to actually add any model to a product. And that's exactly where I was focusing was a model that is part of a product. And then secondarily, making it possible to run experiments so that you're not moving off into a corner and doing it elsewhere and then figuring out how to translate it over. So really that you have frameworks in place. And for Salesforce, we have this platform that makes it possible for data scientists to use services to get access to what they need and to share algorithms, to share future engineering steps and to allow us to run experiments without having access to data, but with understanding how performant the results might be at the end. Uh, so setting aside what the customer might use, how do you kind of express Agile internally in the way you do data science within Salesforce? Yeah, so the team that I run, the Prediction Builder team, um, we have multiple models in production, but we use one underlying code base that automates the entire feature engineering process. So it's AutoML that we use. And the platform team as a whole is responsible for having services around um, you know, safe access to data, around making compute scalable and possible. And these elements around automated machine learning are really where we get to implement that agile methodology really cleanly. So when you have these shared repositories, um, what that means is if you have models in production and you can continuously monitor their performance, which is really, really critical, um, you're able to understand where there may be a problem, where models are not performant, and be able to go ahead and iterate and come up with solutions to it. So some of the examples that I gave was, you know, you see a drop in AUROC and you decide that you actually want to do something about it. And, you know, assuming you have access to the data, you can do a deep dive and understand what has happened understand if there are some underlying elements, maybe there are fields that are not being processed correctly. Um, Salesforce has some very unique problems around leakage detection. Um, turns out that when you have a pull of data that is um, from a moment where they're setting up the predictions, um, we don't know what came before a certain yes-no event. So an easy example is if you were trying to predict churn and the customer has a field called reason for churn, and they don't explicitly exclude it, we actually need to detect that problem. Because if we're now using reason for churn in our model, we'll have a problem. So those types of things would appear up front in a holdout set that we're doing extremely well. But over time, you would see that there's a degradation in performance. Because of course, you're not doing a good job on any of the new data sets that were in that scoring open set. And so it's that kind of monitoring and identifying of problems to which we then have to create resolutions. So if it's introducing a new test to, to find leakers, if it's coming up with a new way of processing text, if it's, you know, at some point you can imagine wanting to use sentiment as just a, a feature that you engineer out of any text field that comes in. So really having that shared repository, being able to add that new feature. So taking the time building a new way of engineering it, adding it on to that library or that service, and then iterating. That's sort of one, one portion. There's like the user story run implementation. 
There's also really that platform, though, around how do you now run an experiment? So if you have a new feature that you're adding, and in our case, you can have so many customers that are building models using your underlying AutoML, you would need to understand what the impact is of adding that feature to any one of your customers. And so being able to do that in a way that doesn't require us to look at data, but allows us to run an experiment at scale to understand what the impact would be. Are there any regressions that happen, for lack of a better term? in our mm-hmm. model performance across the board. So to make sure I understand that, you, so you've got these customers, customer data, it's all single tenant. It sounds like you're not testing against it, but you are. What exactly are, are yeah. how exactly are you doing so that or what are you what, doing? What our team is not able to do is look, so in you general- You can't look at the data. We cannot. Got so that. Trust is our number one value across the board at Salesforce. And so we cannot sure. request access. That is not our data. But can you deploy models to it that don't return the data and, yes. and test statistically? Yeah. So you can understand Got at it. an aggregate level, you know, what is your performance? Is there a change in performance? Got it. And uh, we do have customers that we might pilot a product with where we can work and understand what's going on. Um, they can request investigations, but it's not a system where we need to be able to go in and look at every single model. Similarly, although Salesforce is you know, at such a massive scale, any company will have multiple models in production at some point. I, I don't believe any company sets out to have exactly one model. And it's unlikely that at some point, every model is going to have such a heavy data science component that rather than monitoring and alerting to a degradation performance, you would want to be able to just have multiple models in production and probably a smaller number of data scientists supporting those efforts and iterating. And so having a, sh- a platform where you have a shared set of services for engineering and for understanding that if you add a feature or if you change an algorithm or you decide to tune parameters in a certain way, understanding the impact across the board becomes really pr- critical. And, and so having those monitoring services there, although it cr- is really important for Salesforce, is extremely important for any company that's out there. I'm envisioning a uh, when you say platform, I'm, I'm envisioning something analogous to like Uber's published quite a bit on Michelangelo, their internal platform, uh, and some other companies have. Um, Netflix talks about their platform a lot too. Right, it's yeah, right. it's really great. Um, LinkedIn. I mean, a lot of companies have spent time. I think what's what's so unique about what Salesforce does is our platform is around running multiple models for our customers, and it's really around taking what all of these companies have done and the number of data scientists and engineers that go into building those platforms and making it accessible to our customers so that they can benefit from what it is that we have done and be able to access it with just a few clicks instead and sort of know that you have that that data science prowess behind it and people that are paying attention to constantly improving and making things better on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the first of these elements uh, is a repository um, and you've mentioned a couple of things that might be in that repository, models and features. What else is in that repository? So in general, and again, this will vary by companies that are building for, for their purposes. Um, if it's, for example, a single application that you have, there's always going to be an element around data. So how is it there? You're storing data. How are you indexing it? How do you access it? Data scientists don't want to be paying attention to like what folder is this living in or what table or what are the histories. So what we do is we build APIs to let us request data in a certain way so that it can be, again, automated. There exists a customer that wants to use the services and therefore being able to reference via APIs and running code against that is then possible. And although, again, not everyone is operating at Salesforce scale, 
no data scientist necessarily wants to spend time thinking about how data moves in and out. Right. But those services need to be there to make it possible and to make it possible to index what's happening, look for drifts, understand how to monitor that scores are being pushed back, the scores have changed over time, all of these elements around data services, monitoring services, and then actual modeling and feature engineering as well. So interestingly enough, this topic is timely for me. I just organized an event last week where we spent quite a bit of time talking about this notion of, uh, you know, machine learning platforms and agile data science and things of that like. And um, one of the questions that came up is, you know, for a company that is not necessarily on a platform like Salesforce, but is doing data science, you know, when do they start to collect some of this stuff into a platform? When does it make sense to build a platform? If you're an if you're a you know an internet company, it's probably earlier than if you're a traditional enterprise. How do you know when it's time to start uh, consolidating some of this functionality, building repositories, building monitoring frameworks, stuff like that? So monitoring is from the start. Like anytime you have an application, you're you're going to monitor everything that's happening on those apps. So as soon as you're wanting to add a model to it, you have to have monitoring around your models. It's to treat a model any different from another feature of your app kind of does your 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 data scientist a disservice because they want to know what's happening not by always requesting access and moving over. They need to be alerted to an issue the same way anyone else would be. Also for allowing them to triage the problem more quickly. I understand that in general, there might be a question about waiting until you have multiple models maybe or some opportunities for sharing. But I argue, and that was sort of one of my take-homes on the talk today, sort of my main point is to plan for multiple models always. I cannot imagine an organization that doesn't commit to having more than one model. And by doing so, really doing some upfront planning Certainly at my last job, there were many companies that were kind of in this position of having a lot of smaller organizations within that could have benefited from sharing, from understanding. And of course, there's always a question of investment. And I think it's a struggle when you don't invest time in the platform. I was just talking with several people today about the fact that there's an expectation that you should have good return on investment for your modeling and for the data scientists you hire and everything that's there. And of course, with that, they want to have the normal agile processes in place of having ways to assess the risk and how much longer and like, when am I going to see something from it? And as a data scientist, and certainly coming from graduate school, we think of it as like, oh, we're entering a research project. We have absolutely no idea if this will work. And, and you know, let us go work on it for our three months, six months, a year, and we'll get back to you. And that may be one way to approach it, but inevitably that leads to all-around frustration, both on kind of the business that is trying to get something and also the data scientists who then, once they're ready, don't necessarily know how to go to production. And so if we really want a more agile approach as a whole, you must build platforms to support your data scientist's ability to iterate, ability to understand how well something is performing, and ability to fail early. Because if we don't commit to having data pipelines, monitoring services, ways to deploy models from the start, we will inevitably find ourselves in the position of every single time starting over, rather than building for multiple apps from the beginning. 
do you feel like data science is standardized enough across organizations and use cases that we can do that, right? Like a classic problem is, you know, building a platform before you're, you know, the problem that the platform is trying to solve, right? You, you build all kinds of features. Oh, I need a, you know, model repository with versioning that does X, Y, Z. This is what the API looks like. And then you go to actually build something and it doesn't, you know, it's like you, you're building the bridge from both sides and they don't meet in the middle. Oh, I love that. There's like a famous bridge between Germany and Switzerland that every time I drive by with my dad who lives there, he always talks about how the German side and the Swiss side agreed to build it. And when they came to me in the middle, they were off by a huge number because Switzerland measures from elevation from the Mediterranean and Germany from the North Sea. And that was the reason why this happened. <laughs> it's like very funny. It's like starting a raise at zero and one. And <laughs> no, there's like a, there, you can find blogs about this online. Okay. It's very funny, but, um, I totally understand what you're saying, and absolutely, at the outset, I and I should have done the same here, I level set my talk with saying, look, there are different types of models. And my examples are, there are models that are informing strategic decisions, and my classic examples are from, you know, back in my biomedical informatics days, they're, you know, trying to identify the next drug target to go after. And so we're doing a bunch of data science to understand where to head next with our research. Right. And they're kind of these others that are, like, doing automated decisions, and they're ones that are, like, augmenting an app and maybe informing something. So like predictive lead scoring, will this lead convert? Right. And you're absolutely right. Depending on what it is that you're building, you would want to focus on the different elements first. But across the board, there will always be things that make sense, like how to bring your data in a way that's access controlled, in a way that is also accessed via APIs. I, I cannot think of a reason to not want to do that. There's no reason to have to like imagine what folder or table or scheme. It just it's a uh, it's painful to think of it that way. Is the corollary there that the data lake is not enough? <laughs> Look, it's it's all iterative. <laughs> you know, we all started on a path together on a journey, and what I really hope and the hope of my talk was to share how we're we're moving forward on this and. And to learn from each other with it. So I, I know that, again, during my consulting days where I was asked to do these projects and then kind of convince the organizations that what we had done was good enough and now let's, let's figure out how to build an app, that was interesting because it was almost like the companies needed convincing that data science was going to do something good. And if we can all agree that there will be value in models, if only we accepted it, can't we start by saying that we're looking to build a use case into something? And let's come up with some, let's create a roadmap for it, and then decide what to execute against first in an MVP mindset. And the other element is that that agile request that we have of data scientists does need to come with that commitment to support them and to support the differences between data scientists and software developers. They have a lot of things in common around wanting to monitor their models or their their services around wanting to, you know, understand how to improve around trying out new technologies or algorithms, but they just have slightly different ways that those need to be solved and platform commitment needs to be there to make that possible. Let's take it from a software development perspective. I'm a software engineer. I'm building some kind of component or a service, microservice, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's part of Agile, part of DevOps, I don't know, part of whatever you want to call it, like the current best practices. I'm also building the tests and responsible for the tests 
that, uh, you know, would ultimately monitor the performance of my service. Sure. Right. Uh, a big part of DevOps is I also own that service in production and I'm responsible for its upkeep. So it's in my, it's to my advantage to build the test that will allow me to be mm-hmm. able to do that. Data science is, is a bit different at most places, I think, because there's this bit of a, I don't know if you want to call it a wall that may be too strong, but there's, you know, the person who's building the models isn't the person that's putting that in the model into production and is responsible for, they're responsible for different elements of it, right? The data scientist is responsible for the performance of that model over time. Are they also building those monitoring tests or is the engineering team that's implementing the model building those overall monitoring tasks? Like where does that, Sit. Those, I think those are hard questions to answer as a whole. I think. In the abstract meaning? Yeah. Like, at, companies at will go about it differently. Where does that well, so sit? I think one thing is to consider that because this, this concept of like completely isolated teams is, is difficult. I think it's important for data science and engineering to sit extremely closely. In, sure. in Prediction Builder, for example, we have a very hybrid team. We have we have a designer, we have front end, we have data scientists. And our data scientists are very good engineers as well in the sense that they've learned how to write code or at least work on these libraries that are able to run in production. And part of that is because of the way we have built that platform, we can run that code and run experiments using that code and make changes. And if you just think about it as adding a component in and not necessarily what you're describing, which is um, kind of completely offline building and then, okay, okay, it looks good on the sample data and then what you're saying, throwing it over the wall. But instead having the ability to run it in those same environments and make sure that it's performant. And of course, having a team that's dedicated to understanding, you know, scalability concerns if those exist um, to make sure that those things are all very intertwined. And that monitoring happens in the same way that we have the same alerts for, you know, SLAs are not met. Well, your SLAs are not met for models aren't, aren't running fast enough. They're not reaching completion fast enough. Um, you're not, you know, pushing back scores. You're, you've, you've seen a drop in the number of scores. You've seen your valuations have changed. I mean, you can kind of hijack some of the same tools um, or you can build your own. But I would suggest looking at how suitable existing infrastructure is and existing tools that exist for the rest of your app and seeing how many of those could also now support data scientists as well. I think there is a desire across the board as well to integrate these teams and to stop treating them as completely isolated. And I really think part of it is by introducing them to that same culture, the same agile processes, then maybe they wouldn't feel the need to feel so separate as well. But you really do need to support them in that in that change. I think that that's maybe an interesting segue to people and process. Like we've talked a lot about technology. Yeah, yeah. That's only one leg of the stool, yeah. so to speak. Uh, you certainly touched on people and process uh, throughout. But did you have a specific message in your talk around the people aspect of all this? Yeah. So some of it was really around my own journey from starting in an extremely research-oriented world. And to be honest, back in grad school, I wish that somebody had introduced Agile to me. I, I would have benefited from really not spending time on obsessively thinking about one particular problem and instead creating an MVP and iterating. And 
probably would have also helped in terms of when when do I publish a paper, if you think of that as your quote-unquote release. So it was around that journey on acknowledging the similarities that I have with developers, around the needs that I have, how they are served by either a process or by, you know, a monitoring tool or um, tests that they write and, and how those aren't identical for me, but there are things that I want that, again, bringing the platform in, if I could only modify those elements, I might be able to get, but also a little bit around, you know, what it means to have a user story for a data scientist. So sort of acknowledging my, my asks and, and my desire to want to push live, um, thinking then next on the process side, given that there's a platform in place, how can I now go through identifying opportunities where the team focuses on things that are near-term and things that are long-term? So we have a backlog of things that we want to achieve. We have investigations that are ongoing, and those investigations follow a certain pattern, which is you know identify a source cause, um, and from that create user stories around solutions that you want to implement. And those are sometimes very very tangible, very easy, uh, you know, tuning a hyperparameter, trying to understand if you could add a new feature, maybe there's a bug, you know, something that I give an example of like a text field that's blank should be treated as a null, you know, something very explicit like that, very tangible. Um, and, and you can have this running backlog of those items. Um, but we also acknowledge that at any stage, there could be a lot of open opportunities. Maybe you want to try uh, new word embeddings or you want to try a segmented model. And those are larger problems that require longer term efforts. And to kind of balance out those near term data science focused and require data science chops to identify the issues against the longer term, more innovative opportunities, we have architects on the team that are able to take on those bigger meteor problems to understand how do we tackle using something completely different and choose when to promote that into something that will push into production. So you do need to have a large enough team to support both sides of that. And so is this, are you identifying a a role that's specifically a data science architect as opposed to like a traditional engineering architect or developer architect? So, yeah, I guess the the role of architect is very specific, which is somebody who's, you know, at the level of, of solving these meteor problems. Um, not necessarily the architect that you're that you're mentioning, but they do have a solid understanding and ability to work and communicate with a engineering architect. So, yeah. But, I, tri- but uh, is this architect on the data science side? Is that even the right way to say it? Is it someone that's come up through data science what i've not yeah. heard much of the notion of a data science architect so if that's what we're even calling this yes i mean that that's sort of the term we use and maybe that's too specific to us but it is the folks that serve that role are individuals that have strong machine learning chops and strong engineering chops to the sense that they can understand you know, where something would fail, where there might be a problem with scalability, where there might be a whole new paradigm that needs to be introduced. And at times, folks need to come together and learn, but there are people that are essentially given the space and time to be able to go after these other problems, um, as opposed to the ones that are more focused on the MVP near term. So we have kind of our productivity zone and our, like, incubation zone. And, and yeah, a team needs to be large enough to support it, but oh, it makes it's important. Sense. Yeah. Uh, and how about on the process side? Are there 
observations that you've made uh, from a process perspective and yeah, that makes this all more efficient, uh, more smoothly flowing? Yeah. Um, aside from actually using, you know, your traditional backlog and stories, um, what we do that I think, again, borrowing these techniques from elsewhere really around doing prioritizations around, you know, what is the value of going after a certain element versus an ease of implementation to allow us to triage where to spend our time. And value is something really hard to assess. How do I know what the value is going to be of introducing a new algorithm? How do I know what the value is going to be of, you know, maybe going after a new way to process text or, or engineer features? What I can do or, or um, you know, something like a segmented model what I can do is look at my models and how they're currently failing. What, you, you know, are there a lot, of, a lot more text fields in one of my models? And therefore, I believe that if I make a change, it would have a lot of impact. And sort of measuring where I believe there would be a big shift as one way to prioritize my backlog. And again, around the ease of implementation, really focusing around what will be a longer term and more risky element that I need to work on, but... I won't have the same kind of immediate need to ship. Have you made any uh, attempts to, you know, taking all these, you know, the, the, the technology approach, platform approach, the, the people approach, the process approach, have you made any attempts to try to characterize the net advantage over not doing these things? I mean, I'm imagining they've all evolved organically, and so the answer is probably no, but... You know, certainly there's some degree of overhead associated with these different uh, oh, yeah. steps. How do you continue to justify it? Yeah, so the most obvious, I guess, metric that you could use is how, how quickly your models are improving over time and then how quickly you're able to ship. So I know at previous companies there might be like the actual how often we have new releases that could be used. What's interesting is in data science, of course, it's a little bit challenging because if I release a new model, that could impact my end customers. So, But what we can do is understand how much improvement we're getting on our performance because we do have models and we do have summary stats on how they're performing and we can see how they've changed over time. And of course, it's a, it's a bit tricky when you're in an early phase or in a company that has a smaller number of models in production. But if you can see how quickly you're making progress or improving outcomes or, you know, in the instance of something more explicit like getting customer feedback, um, you know, we, we might have like a time to resolution that there are improvements there, that those are metrics that you can capture at the end if you're sort of unwilling to say like, you know, how, how quickly am I releasing as your measure? Any other topics that you touched on in your talk that we haven't covered yet? Uh, well, I think overall at Salesforce we have this this really cool AutoML pipeline that we've been developing that really focuses around feature engineering and and you know automating the process of selecting models. And I know that I think that term AutoML is something that isn't always so well received by data scientists as a whole. I think. I've noticed that at, at times there's this question around, oh, is like this automation way of data scientists, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it actually isn't at all. And the reason why I think it's such an important concept for everyone to introduce is that what AutoML really represents is harnessing your data scientists' repeated 
future engineering techniques, repeated analyses, finding opportunities to do these things. And instead of having everybody come up with a new, you know, like stop word removal or um, language classifier sentiment analysis, share those. Work together on saying, I would like to use you know, this shared library and let's instead focus together on how to automate that process and identifying ways to, you know, produce more features and, and instead focus on the fun, hairy problems. Like what's the next set of features that I want to engineer. Right. Right. So it's, it's not really such a scary space. It's actually very empowering. I feel for data scientists to, to consider what they can contribute there. It's been a great chat. Thank you so much. Anything else you'd like to mention before we close out? No, I'm so appreciative of this opportunity. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Sarah or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimmel.ai slash talk slash 143. Thanks again to Figure 8 for their sponsorship of this episode. To follow along with the Train AI series, visit twimmel.ai slash trainai2018. And finally, show us some love for the podcast's second anniversary and share how it's been helpful to you over at twimmel.ai slash 2AV. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.